good to see everybody. Uh, where on earth were you all last week? <laughs> um, it's great to have everyone back from the holidays and these from Thanksgiving. And I was just telling my friend Jenna here, it's as crazy as it seems right now. This is really the calm before the storm. I mean, this is this is like the last week of like normalcy usually for us. It's it's about to get crazier for the next two and a half, three weeks. And so we've been we've been taking our time with this series. Um, during the Advent season. Um, I don't know if you know much about the church calendar, um, but there's, a, there's actually on the church calendar every year, it's, it's, not, it's not like a flip chart calendar or a, or a uh, calendar on your phone. There's actually a church schedule calendar. There's a, there's a cycle throughout the year. The church has celebrated um, traditionally for centuries. And this is one aspect of that that we'll come to every single year called Advent. Um, and you may know other aspects of it as well, called Lent and Easter and Good Friday and 12 Days of Christmas. And all those things are actually church-scheduled things. And so it's actually very fun for me. I really enjoy this every year to actually get to this Advent season. Um, it's a time where personally I kind of am able to kick back and start to reflect on all that has happened in the last 11 months. And so um, I'm hoping that we can do that together as a church, that, that, this, that these four Sundays, starting last week and continuing through to the Sunday around Christmas, um, that it really is, it does feel different. We want it to feel different. We want it to feel special. We want it to feel like we're actually celebrating something special. And so we're going to take time to talk about the birth of Jesus over these four Sundays. And in the series we've called, it's called Songs of the Story. And we're going through the four songs that are in the first chapter of Luke. Last week, we did Mary's song with the uh, Magnificat. And if you weren't there, if you weren't here last week, please, please find that online. It was a fantastic, um, it was a fantastic study about um, how Mary, this, this unwed teenage girl, is encountered by God. And she is thrown into a whirlwind of circumstances and is facing so much stigma in front of, in front of her. Yet God has promised her something so great to actually be the mother of the Lord Jesus. And so we took some time last week to talk about how through the Holy Spirit, she was actually able to magnify the Lord in the middle of her life being completely altered in a moment. She took note, Mary took note of how good God had been to her. We talked about how we should be good students of the grace of God in our lives, that, that we should actually take a moment to reflect on how good God has been to us. We saw too, and in Mary's song, we saw too how God is... God, through His Son Jesus, is planning to humble the proud and to raise up those that are humble and to remove mighty, proud, controlling people from their thrones and show that it's only through humbling ourselves unto God that we actually find peace in life. It's not through controlling our circumstances. And it's the hungry that get filled with good things. And it's the rich, it's those that are confident in themselves that get sent away empty. The real question that we hit last week was how, in light of all this, in this season, in this, in this Advent season, 
are we going to find joy? Of all the options that we have for joy right now, it seems like our lives are full with options to seek comfort and joy with all the traditions, with all the family, with all the fun, all the presents, all the snow, all the fat red men in the stores and all the things that children are looking forward to. There's so many things to find pleasure in and joy in. But how is God calling us in this season to really find ourselves and to find joy? So it's funny to me in one way that Advent, Christmas, this whole season is actually embraced by the culture at large. It would seem to me that they would actually prefer other church things like Good Friday and Easter with spring and new beginning and stuff like that. But actually, actually the world actually gravitates toward this season. But really, it's this season that cuts across the world the most. I mean, think about this. Christmas sends the message to the world with bringing God becoming a man and stepping back into our world it sends the message that we can't figure it out for ourselves. It sends the very confrontational message that you need help and I have to come into this world to help you. I think of it kind of like this. We we live in a two-story home and oftentimes I'm working upstairs doing something on the computer, doing something in the office upstairs and my children are playing in the basement below. And this usually happens when Rebecca is actually finding a few minutes to herself somewhere else or she's on an errand or something like that. And I'm left alone with the kids. You guys have probably experienced this. But I'm sitting upstairs and and, and I hear something that you may be surprised to hear in my household, but I actually hear girls fighting. Um, I have five girls now, and just five, and they they are all... At the point now, even Tess, the youngest, who is almost two, she is now able to scrapple with all of them. So it was just one person trying to fight with us, and then it was two people trying to fight with each other, and then three, then four, then five. And So sometimes there's noises and screams and shouts and scratching. And girls don't fight like boys do. Um, um, I won't go into all that. But the, um, So what I'll do is I'll hear them fighting over something, and... And I'll do what every good parent does. I'll send down advice. Hey, y'all share. <laughs> Which I know is a thought they've never heard of. Hey, stop that. I can hear you all the way upstairs. Don't hit your sister. And then, if that doesn't work, then you'll throw down warnings. Being like, okay, remember what happened yesterday when you were doing this? It didn't end well for you or anybody else. (laughs) And you all know this. That doesn't work. So what do we have to do? For this thing to be solved, I have to get up out of my chair and become incarnate in the basement. (laughs) I have to become... My Word has to become flesh and I have to step into this situation (laughs) and fix it. They can't fix it. So Christmas is the message of God coming into our mess and fixing it. The same way that we have to step into our kids' lives sometimes and make it work. So it's a very confrontational thing. But backing up, we're looking this week at the song of Zechariah. And that's him up there. And just as a note, the oil painting from last week too with Mary is amazing. 
and you can see them out there in the foyer. Don't, don't miss uh, checking them out as well. Um, so we have Zechariah, and here's, so we're going to back up a little bit because the narrative in Luke actually begins here. The angel Gabriel actually shows up to Zechariah first. Mary's elderly cousin is Elizabeth, and she is married to a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah is a country priest. He's not, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives outside of the city. Zechariah and Elizabeth are an elderly couple. And he works as a priest in the temple. This is the, this is the center of Jewish life. It is busy. It is crazy. There is where people are praying. People are worshiping. It is the intersection of everything in the Jewish culture. It happens around this temple. And this country priest gets selected. Gets selected out of 18, I think it's 18,000 priests that were on the list at the time. He gets to serve in Jerusalem twice a year. And he's doing his priestly service. And he gets selected by lot to actually offer incense before the Lord in the temple. This is a very big deal. So he is, so in this moment, we'll see in a moment that God intervenes. God steps in, into the temple. He steps into Zechariah's world and speaks to him. The greatest thing that we see here with these narrative gospel stories is that the, the Bible is full of real people. Full of real people with real despairs, real problems, real issues, and real joys. These, these are not wooden characters. These are not, they, they, these are not people, these are not make-believe characters in a storybook. These are real people that had real lives. And it's just one of those things that when we think of people attached to Jesus somehow, we, we tend to think they become less human. When we read about them in the Bible, we, we think they become less human. And, and, and we see this in church history that they were pictured with halos and they look weird in pictures in church history. They don't look like real people. I mean, the baby Jesus was not a man-child sitting there making the sign of the cross like we see in all the Eastern Orthodox icons. And Mary was not this you know, Mona Lisa looking figure without a smile on her face, just kind of staring off in the distance. That's not how they lived. Real people. And, that, and so what makes this story even better, what makes this song even more significant is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were elderly and they had never had children. Elizabeth was barren. And in, and in these days, there were no fertility treatments. There were no adoption agencies. To be barren was not just depressing, was not just, to not have a child was not just inconvenient, it was not just depressing, it was actually despair. They actually, in this culture, to not have a child was actually, felt like God had cursed them. And so, this is something that Elizabeth and Zachary have been praying about. They have been praying for God to give them a child. So, knowing all of that, we enter into Luke 1. Verse 13, and you can read it up here. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You know, all angels know at this point that they need to tell people on earth not to be afraid. They have learned since the beginning that we all get afraid. 
they're not used, we're not used to them, and they're not used to us, and when they show up, we're afraid. So every angel knows now by the New Testament to say, don't be afraid. Um, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained Mute. So it says, from this point, because of the way Zechariah responded to Gabriel, that for the next nine months, he could not say a word. So he went home and Elizabeth rejoiced. (laughs) He went home not just mute, but we realized later that he he was also deaf. Because it says later that, that they had to make signs to him as well. So this is not a big deal, and I want to make a big point about this, but, but I think Luke takes pains to show us how Mary responded to Gabriel, how she responded and said, how will these things be that you're telling me? How, how is it that I am to have a son since I'm a virgin? She's asking God, what will you do to bring this about? Zechariah's response is slightly different. It says, how will I know this will happen? How will I know? He's not saying, God, what will you do? He says, what can I do to bring this about? What proof can you show me? How can I contribute to this to bring this about? It was not a response, believing God. Anyway, just study that for yourself. It was, it was, it's, it's an amazing comparison. But, but so, because of where Zechariah's heart is, he doesn't say a word. For nine months. He doesn't hear a word for nine months. But yet, Elizabeth conceives. She gives birth to a son. And then they name that child of the circumcision. The family's around. Everybody's around. Everyone has an opinion still about what to name the child. It's just like today. And everyone is saying, let's name him after Zechariah. Yet, John writes, I mean, Zechariah writes on the tablet, his name is John according to the word of the angel, the word of the Lord, which means gracious. His name is John. And immediately, his mouth was opened, it says in verse 64, and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all the neighbors, and all the things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. It says that Zechariah blessed God. He praised God. And Luke actually records now what Zechariah said. 
And it's, this is called the Benedictus. It's Latin for the word blessing. And this is such a rich, I'm telling you, a rich passage for understanding how God meets our greatest needs through His Son, Jesus. We're also going to see what is that deepest need. We're going to look at how actually does God promise to save us. It might be different than what we expect. How is it different than what we expect? How does God move in our life to save us in ways that are different than we would expect? And what should happen to us when He does? What happens to us? We, we, we know what God has done for us, but what exactly does God do to us in the sending of His Son? Here we go. Luke 1. And His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, I was talking about John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways and to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. And this is a clock that I'm going to put right here. So there will be no reason to mess this one up. There we go. As long as that's right, we're okay. If not, then we're all in trouble. Um, Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Remember, first words in nine months. His promise was made to him about his son, John. But his first words are not about his son, John, but about Jesus. My guess is that he learned a lot in these nine months. Think about what would happen to you. If you had nothing to listen to, you couldn't say a thing, and all you had and all you could do was meditate on what God had spoken to you. Think about that. Think about how you struggle to have 15 minutes a day to sit and what happens in your heart when you do and how good it is. You know you get those moments of clarity, those moments of sweetness when it is you and God and everything else fades into the distance. All your, all your thoughts about work, all your struggles with your family, all your fears and doubts about the future, and all your struggles with the past fade in the distance, and it's you and God and His Word, and how great that is. Imagine nine months. And this is what comes out. He says, For He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This is in the past tense. He's saying, 
God has visited and redeemed His people. This child that we were born in a few months, this is God having visited and having redeemed. He is convinced that God, that this child is God coming to earth and is the fulfillment of everything that has been promised by God. Everything. This is the one. This is the fulfillment of what God has promised. In, in, way back in Genesis, it says that God promised a seed of the woman that would come and ultimately defeat the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve and all of us into sin. There was a seed coming. In Moses, God, God provided a great deliverer for the, for, the, for the nation of Israel in the person of Moses. And Moses led the children out of Egypt through the wilderness and up to the gate of the promised land. And right before they go into the promised land, Moses is giving them the law again. And he says, it's a, it's, most, I haven't heard a lot about this, but it is so clear in there. And, and it says that Moses told them that there is going to be a prophet like me coming after me that you will finally listen to. Finally, there is one coming and you will listen to his words and you will actually do what he says. This is that prophet. Someone was coming to redeem and fix the world. Throughout the entire Old Testament, there are, there, are, there are types and there are promises made about one who is coming to fix the mess that we have made. Someone is coming to be God in the world for us and to save us from all of this. But the greatest, the absolute greatest pinnacle of expectation and hope for the Jewish nation was the descendant of King David. It was the promise given to David. In 2 Samuel 7, we're, we're not going to tur- turn there, but the situation is like this. David wants to build God a temple. But then God turns to David and says, you know what, I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to build you a name. I'm going to build you a house. And my blessing, my promise upon you is going to be that your kingdom shall never end. There will always be a descendant of David upon the throne. There will be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever and ever, and your nation will never end. Now, that is an amazing promise. An amazing promise. Think about it. An everlasting kingdom. At this point in time, note, Israel was at the apex of their influence, of their riches, of their wealth, of their place in the earth. This was like the glory days of Israel. And they receive a promise from God through Nathan the prophet that this is going to continue forever. And that someone from David will always be on the throne making this happen. This was the expectation of Israel. This is the hope that they lived in. This is what they looked forward to year after year after year. But what happened after King David? What happened after that? You know what happened to his son? His son was wise and great and all that and he expanded its borders, but... By the, ten, by, by the time Solomon was done with, with the nation, it was split in two. And after that, it just went south quick. And literally, defeat after defeat after defeat from foreign nation from foreign nation, the nation split in civil war. Israel lost its place in the world. The land was then occupied and conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Persians, the Greeks, and eventually the Romans. And that's where we find... Israel now. Think of all of that. Think of the disappointment and the disappointment built up for year after year after year. 
king after king after king that they thought, well, this is, this, this is going to be the descendant of David that's going to restore Israel back to being what it was. Back to being the mo- one of the most important nations in the world. Ruler after ruler failed the nation of Israel. But God would send prophets to remind them that God was still there, that God had still promised to be their God, and that to make them His people. And that there is still someone coming. But listen, after it had also been 800 years since the glory days of the prophets in Israel. It would have been 800 years since all the miracles surrounding Elijah and Elisha at, at this time. It had been 500 years since they had ever seen an angel. Since Israel had ever, ever been visited by an angel. I think the last one was when, was when the angel of the Lord sh- showed up in the fiery furnace in Babylon with the three Hebrew servants. And it had been 400 years since God had spoken anything to them. 400 years, nothing. Silence. Some God, and yeah, we are some people. Absolutely dashed. Their hopes are absolutely dashed. Can you relate to this? Can you relate to your hopes being dashed? Can you connect to the fact that that your life has not turned out the way that you planned? That your expectations of what God might do for you and of what you might achieve in your life are different than what you're experiencing? Are you honest enough to say that you're not living the life that you had always planned to live? I think for me, I I can think of there's schools that I wanted to get into but didn't. There could be for some of us children that we wanted to have but haven't. The career that we've wanted to have but we don't have. And we might be at the age that we are and the place in life that we are that we never will have. You may have thought that you'd be married by now, and you're not. And the prospects don't look like they're getting any better. How are you responding? How are you responding to that? Are you angry? Resent, are you resenting anyone or anything? If you're like me, you get depressed. Hopeless. These are all the reactions to our hopes being dashed. And to add insult to injury, in one sense, but also to add help and hopefulness in the other, think back about God's promises to Israel, specifically with His promises about David and, and, and the kingdom, He never gave them a timeline to when He would fulfill those things. He almost set them up for disappointment. He said, this kingdom will last forever, and it lasted on one generation. And He never told them that. It was almost like He set them up to be disappointed. I think in some ways he does that for us. He doesn't give us a timetable. He doesn't tell us exactly when he's going to fulfill his promises to us. He doesn't exactly tell us how he's going to meet us in our deepest needs. But we're going to see in a moment how the gospel, and specifically the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, a human, 
actually helps us right here. We're going to see how Christmas helps us with this almost disabilitating disappointment that we feel about perhaps how our lives have turned out. See, God does not simply delay making good on His promises like He did for Israel. His fulfillment and His redemption is often very different from how we expect. His blessing comes to us in ways that we do not expect. But we're going to see that how He meets our deepest needs even in these ways we could not predict. Look at verse 69. I don't know if it's still up there. But if you go back to verse 69, he says that this, that this child is actually called a horn of salvation from the line of David. Now, we're going to miss this in, in our culture, but horn is not talking about a French horn. It's not talking about a car horn. It's talking about the horn of an ox, a horn on a bull. Has anyone ever Googled the videos from the running of the bulls in Spain? Do you know what I'm talking about? Every year, before all the big bullfights, they, they gather up all these bulls in one end of town, and they let them go, and these crazy, drunk idiots try to run in front of these bulls. I, I would certainly want to try that one time, but maybe not. And then, But I have kids now, so I wouldn't. But the... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these videos, but they actually have a list of all the people that have been gored to death by the horns, these massive horns on these bulls. A horn is like that. A horn is a symbol of strength and power and destruction. A horn is something that is, that is mighty. So he says that this little child, look at the, the, the irony here, this little child is the horn of salvation. This person, born in a, in a barn from a common, normal family. That a child that will be born in the middle of feed and what feed turns into here. This is how this child born in such humble circumstances is going to be the strength of salvation. This is a clue for us that God's kingdom, like we said last week, is completely completely upside down. It is completely inside out that, that this child, that this Messiah is going to change everything and redefine everything. See, this is the scandal. This is the scandal of, of Christmas is in this moment. Think about this. If you had set out your life goals like this, let's say you had said, you know what? In 2,000 years, I want three-fourths of the world to know my name. In 2,000 years, I would like for one quarter of the world to actually follow my teaching and have a life that is built around what I did. In 2,000 years, I want, civ- I, I, want, I want to have worked this thing out to where civilizations will have literally based everything that they do on what I say and what I've said. Those are your goals. And you know what you would do? You know what I, I would do? We would hire consultants. We'd hire consultants. And you know what they would say? They would say, you need to roll this thing out. You need to roll out your platform. You need to go to the biggest city centers. You, you, you need to engage all the power brokers in, in the nation, in the world. Get them on your side. A, a, solicit their help. And roll this thing out with the biggest fanfare 
marketing, advertising, Times Square, jumbotrons, do it that way. They would never say, get crucified in the prime of your career. They would never say, be born in the worst and humble of situations and circumstances. They would never say your PR agent should be a guy with the last name Baptist and dressed like Fred Flintstone growing up eating bugs and honey in the wilderness. They would never say that needs to be your PR guy. They would never say that. Right here we can see that this Messiah is going to redefine everything. Redefine us as well. Look at verse 72. The mercy promised to our fathers. This is the mercy. This child is the mercy promised to our fathers. Remembering His holy covenant, His oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Deliverance from our enemies that we might serve Him without fear. What a great promise. But how on earth is Jesus going to do this? Remember what I said about redefinition. What's really happening here? Let me ask you a question. Who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? You may say, Chris, okay, I, you know, I, there's, there's, there's no one lining up outside my door with a bat. I don't have enemies that are trying to kill me. But you know, the reality is you do have enemies. You do. Let me ask you this. Who, who in your life is a barrier to you? A hindrance? Is there anybody that you can think of in your sphere, in your family, in your work, that is uh, standing in the way of your peace and your happiness and your expectations? Maybe it's a coworker that's always pushing work back in your direction. Maybe it's this week, it's, this, it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids that aren't really following the script that you wrote for them this week. These are all those that you lash out at in your mind. If you're anything like me, you recognize these in your life and you lash out at them. And these people that frustrate you, these people that get in your way, these people that don't follow your plan for your life and theirs, they become your enemies. And how do you know that? You have a conversation with them in your head all the time. And you're telling them off in your head all the time. And you would confront them with your words if you were brave enough. And you thought you could take a punch. But you don't. But they're your enemies. We have all these things, all these circumstances, all these things on the outside of us that we think are standing in our way to accomplish what is going to make us happy, to what is going to make us fulfilled. To We have all these things that are hindering our life. It's those that threaten us and cause us to fear. So our hope is, this is our hope. If you're honest, this is your hope. And if you're really bad off, this is your prayer. <laughs> you pray, you want God to change them. You want God to remove them. You, you want God to make them different so that you can have what you want. So they can stop being a barrier to you. You want God to destroy them. But here's the thing. That's exactly the way Israel thought. They thought that it was everything surrounding them 
that was their biggest problem. They thought it was all the enemies out there. But no, they're not the enemy. The people that you're having internal conversation with this week in your head, they are not the enemy. Our enemies are the affections that are inside of us. It is the desires that take over our lives. And like Peter said, it's these, it's these misplaced desires that wage war against our soul. God's promise to Abraham is that he would be their God and that he would create a people. What does it say? It says that Abraham believed God. Back in Genesis, it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, so really, 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 what is the blessing? What is the promise made to Abraham? Did Abraham really need a land? No. Ultimately, he didn't need a land. He was sinful. He needed something else. He needed righteousness. Was God going to bless Abraham and then bless the whole world through Israel simply getting a piece of property? Through simply defeating a few pagan nations around him? Absolutely not. That was not the ultimate promise. The world has plenty of dirt. It doesn't need dirt. It's got sin and it needs righteousness. You and I, we don't need more things. We don't need more promises. We are sinful and we need righteousness. This is the blessing that God has promised to Abraham. It is Jesus that lives this perfect life that we should have lived. And He obeys in every ordinance and every place that we haven't. This is what we need. This is the blessing of Abraham. We get his righteousness through faith by grace. That is what Zacharias is reminding us of here. That this child right here is going to meet our every and our deepest need. And then he goes on to show us how do we experience this blessing? How do we experience the blessing? How do we experience the real blessing of David's kingdom? which is to have a true and greater king on our side that doesn't defeat all the enemies out there, but defeats actually the enemies in here that try as we might, we cannot defeat. How, <clears throat> how do we experience the real blessing of Abraham, which is the fact that to have righteousness and right standing with God, we no more have to do everything right. But there is one that did right for us, and we experience his rightness by faith. How does that happen? Let's keep reading. The second half of this passage is really about John. Verse 77, it says, John will go to prepare his ways and to give the nods of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Remember, Remember Zechariah's role. He was a priest. For generations and generations, his family had served God's people by offering sacrifices. See, the, the other thing that God had, had ordained for Israel to do was to literally worship God every day, every month, every year by reminding them of their sin. I'm going to prescribe for you a way to come to me, but for you to come to me, you're going to have to be reminded of your sin. You're going to be reminded of how you fell short, and you're going to be reminded of how I am going to make up for your falling short. 
and that you're not going to come into me, you're not going to be my people because of anything that you do, you're going to be my people because of what I have done for you. It is not how devoted you are to me, it is going to be how, how devoted I am to you. That is how you're going to worship me. That is how you're going to come to me. And so month after month, year after year, they would slaughter animals to represent the sacrifice that had to be paid, the penalty that had to be paid for anyone's sin. So for year after year, Zechariah's line would do this, generation after generation after generation. But the reality is, even with all that worship, with all those animals being butchered, with all that sin being remembered, and all those prices being paid, and God atoning all of that sin, sin was never really dealt with. It was never really forgiven. It was simply covered. You were reminded of it year after year, day after day. So when John began to open up his mouth, he did not do it with an affirmation of Israel heralding destruction upon their enemies. He didn't do it to say that now finally is the kingdom coming that you've always wanted where you are exalted and everyone around you is defeated. The Roman Empire is going to be finally removed. He didn't come talking about that. What they heard was a call to repentance. They heard a call to repentance. And it wasn't just religious people. It wasn't just the sinner. It wasn't just those that were the real sinners in society. It was everyone. John the Baptist heralded in the kingdom of God by calling everyone to repent. He called the priests. He called the religious leaders. He called the pastors of those days. He called the most foul-mouthed, blue-collar worker to repent. And one day, after John the Baptist had drawn to himself literally hundreds of disciples, and after he had baptized thousands for repentance, one day, he looks up and he sees his cousin, Jesus. And he says to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your Messiah, your King, is going to be one that actually takes away and deals with our sin. No longer covering it up. No longer ignoring it. No longer taking care of it just long enough for you to not do it again. Not just not just dealing with it in a, in, in a way that you're going to have to do this again and again and again. He said no. He announced the kingdom of God by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There will be no more sacrifices, no more waiting. This is our redemption. This humble Galilean pleasant, peasant, this is our redemption. To begs the question, What did God actually promise Israel in the Old Testament? What did He actually promise? There's another covenant underlying 
all these, all these promises and all these things. And this is what God is after. Jeremiah 31, it should come up here. This is the promise that He made. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put My law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. From the least, from the, those that look the least right, to the greatest, those that look the most put together, they shall all know Me, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus fulfills for us. Through the cross, I will forgive your sin. Now, and only now, and only in this, can you be My people And can't I be your God? What do we get? Do we get get the promises of a great kingdom? Do we get the encouragement of a good and happy life? Do we get everything that we've wanted? Does, Does God roll it out for us and say, this is the blessing that I have for you? This is your redemption? that the script that you've written for your life would actually be fulfilled? No. God takes pains to shatter those illusions. It says, your need is not for all those things to work out. It's not for your circumstances to be fine. It is not for your life to work out the way you planned. In fact, I need to shatter those things in order to show you what you really need. And it is the forgiveness of our sins. What is he saying here? What is the real promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. What do you get? You simply get me. You simply get me. He doesn't promise you anything but himself. He doesn't promise you anything but unbroken fellowship and life with himself. Like Martin Luther said, let good and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is now forever. He only promises, folks, that our souls will be saved. He doesn't promise anything else. And until this becomes enough for us, until this reality of our hope and our dream is simply that God will be our God and we will be our people and we will belong to Him, He will have to shatter and disappoint and frustrate. I'm telling you, I'm praying that God would shatter and dis my illusion. That I would be disillusioned. It was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me and maybe you can say the same. I remember as a freshman at the University of Richmond, I, was, I felt like I was on top of the world. I had worked my whole life to play college in soccer, to play soccer in college. And I had worked my, the other way around, I worked my whole life and put my parents through all kinds of turmoil 
to make me a soccer player so I could play at a university. And I worked my whole life to get good grades and to, and to be the best student I possibly could be so I could be sitting on a college campus one day. And so my freshman year at the University of Richmond, I'm living all of that. I'm living all of it. Until one day, the coach at the University of Richmond calls me in his office and says, well, we've just had all the players that we're recruiting for next year um, agree to come, and so we don't have a place for you on the team anymore. As simple as that sounds, it was like a death knell. It was... I was like, you could have said anything to me. You could have said anything to me. And it would have felt better than what you just said. My life, as I knew it, was over. Everything that I'd looked for, everything I envisioned, everything that I, I literally had imagined myself doing, I was doing, and it was being rocked. I'll never forget walking out of that office and walking down the hallway, going, I have no idea who I am anymore. I have no idea what is waiting for me once I leave this gym to never enter it again. I had a conversation with my dad a few weeks later about my first semester report card. And it wasn't as bad as some, which actually if you multiplied your GPA by itself, it went down. It wasn't that bad. But it was, I think my GPA that first semester was, one point, was a 1.5. Everything, all my enjoyment, all the stuff I had spent time on and money on, was coming back to haunt me. So there I am standing, looking, not knowing who I am because I'm not chasing a ball around a field anymore. Not knowing who I am because my dad is threatening to jerk me out of this school. And I had I'd grown up in the church. I mean, I, I thought I knew everything. I could quote Bible verses. I had been in church all through high school. I went three times a week and twice on Sunday. And, and we, I literally thought I had it all. But I wandered into the back pew of the chapel at the University of Richmond having my dreams shattered. And it may not seem a lot to you. You know, it may not seem like that's a really, you know, it's like, Chris, come on. I mean, you're 19. It's just college. It's just... A, no, no, for me, it was the world. You, you, you know what I mean. For me, it was everything. My dreams were being shattered. And for the first time, for the first time ever, I prayed. For the first time ever, ever, I actually called upon God, and he heard me. I said, God, if I'm supposed to be yours, if, I'm supposed to, if you're supposed to be my God, and I'm supposed to be your, your child, then why am I so miserable? He said, and it wasn't an audible voice, but I remember, I knew the Bible, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And you know what? I realized in that moment that what I'd been doing, I hadn't been seeking God. I'd been seeking all these things. He said, if you will seek me, if you will be satisfied in me being your God, and you being my child, everything that you've ever needed and wanted, first of all, you won't need it and want it anymore as much as you do in the way that you do, but I'll provide everything else that you've ever needed and wanted. That is my Redeemer. That 
is our promise. That God promises to be our God. He doesn't promise anything else. But my prayer and our hope and our joy in this Advent season is that that would become enough. Take time. Take time over the next few weeks. Drill into the Gospel. Drill into these songs. See how great and wonderful a Savior God is. And like we said last week with with, with Mary, her first words, my soul magnifies the Lord. I, my spirit, not just my mouth, but my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Let me pray for us. Lord, if we're honest this morning, we don't spontaneously sing like this. God, if we're honest, we, we don't catch ourselves singing praises to You. We're caught up. We're, we're malcontent. We're, even though we would say we know You and believe You and have You, yet we don't praise You. God, I'm asking that You would shut us in until You become so wonderful, so sweet, so amazing that we would praise You. And not what You promised to give us. And not what You promised to, to change on the outside. But God, what You promise in Yourself is to bring us to You for us to have You and for us to be changed in the process. God, that is our prayer. That is our hope. God, I'm asking that You would shut us in. God, that what happened to Zechariah would happen to us. God, that we could spend time meditating, believing, loving, yearning for You. God, stop our ears from hearing all the lies that we tell ourselves of what we need and what we want and who our enemies are and how we want You to defeat them. God, stop our mouths from communicating so much doubt and so much worry and so much fear. God, give us eyes for You and eyes alone that we may see the salvation of our God. Amen.